It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to These Times. I'm Tom McTay. And I'm Helen Thompson. This week we're turning to Germany, the great engine of Europe. Last year it was the worst performing major economy in the world. And this month the government has slashed its growth forecast for 2024 as well. Robert Halbeck, the economy minister, said the economy was performing dramatically badly. And now some are even worrying about deindustrialization, especially in the wake of the energy shock Germany has experienced since Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The question we're going to ask this week then is why is the German economy labouring under such difficulty? And what do these difficulties reveal about the present economic and geopolitical world? Germany, with its strong industry, a population of 84 million and 96 seats at the European Parliament, the country is a leading political and economic force in the EU. But it is also facing a crisis. I mean, we've had six months in Germany of industrial contraction. And again, going from the theoretical, the abstract, we've talked about the energy crisis. We've talked about the labor shortage. We've talked about all of these stories in Germany. This is really where the rubber hits the road. Now to Germany, where the public transport network has been paralyzed in a strike over pay by two of the country's largest trade unions. Denmark, Poland and Sweden say they believe leaks in two major Russian gas pipelines to Europe are the result of sabotage. I can't promise you more state aid from the federal budget today. But we can fight together for you to enjoy more freedom and respect for your work. So, Helen, I think in a sense, I find it difficult to even think about Germany as a poorly performing economy just because of how many, you know, how many articles, books I've read about how well the German economy performs, how much we need to ape it, how badly Britain's economy has performed in comparison. I mean, clearly the Russia energy shock is a really big part of this story. So maybe that's how we need to think about this in, in this podcast. But when I think back to 2014, going back to the last episode, we talked about and Russia's annexation of Crimea, really the start of the war and the start of this energy shock. Germany doubled down on its uh, on its relationship with Russia. And really, that didn't change until 2022. And the, the, the full scale invasion of Ukraine, which seemed to just blow everything apart. So, I mean, maybe that should be the, f- the focus of the first half of this episode anyway, the, the, uh, from 2014 to 2022. So let's, I mean, let's start by just going back and having a look at what the German economy was like in 2014 before this whole crisis in Ukraine. I think what's really important to see here is that Germany had then, and in many ways still, does have a distinctly industrial economy mm. compared to many other advanced economy states, and particularly in comparison to the other large economy states at the time. So if you look for 2014 at the amount that's being essentially value added to gross domestic product um, by industry in an comparison countries, in Germany, it's 27%. Mm. In France, it's 18. 
in UK it's 18 and the United States it's 19. So this is a quite distinct type of economy that that Germany has. Germany in that respect hasn't deindustrialized in the way in which certainly the British economy had not just in the 80s but in the 90s and in in the early 2000s. And Germany was an exporting success. Yep. I mean, it had a, a large trade surplus. The trade surplus was more than 7% in, in 2014. It actually goes up um, uh, in various years between then and, 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 and 2022 when it crashed in the wake of the energy shock to, to, um, to 4%. And Germany was very much part of the globalised world economy. Mm-hmm. In fact, I would say... You could say that actually the big the winners, if you like, of the the global economy of the from the late nineties through the first at least decade and a half, if not going on to two decades of the of the twenty first century were China and Germany. And that the German relationship with China was as important part of that story as the German relationship with Russia, albeit that taking a, a, a rather different economic um form. So in that sense, I think you would have expected, if you knew in 2014, that the world economy, the global economy was going to become much more geopolitically charged, Mm -hmm. you would have expected Germany to be a loser from that. Because Germany was the one state, one European state that was most clearly benefiting from economic interdependencies, high levels of investment across state borders, high levels of um, trade, and that Germany had integrated its large companies into China's domestic market, essentially, including producing there. Mm -hmm. And it had a stable, not necessarily cheap, supply of energy from Russia. It was kind of mutually beneficial, wasn't it, the relationship between Germany and China? And from my reading, I I saw that from, if you go back and think back to the 2007-2008 financial crisis when it, it you know, obviously hugely affected uh, Britain and countries that were more um, – their economies were more dependent on finance. Well, actually, Germany's relationship with China kind of shielded it from much of that. It could continue exporting in a way and and that was part of the story. So when you get to 2014-15, Germany looks like it's got – it's in the kind of perfect place. It's got uh, cheap energy coming from Russia. It's got this great relationship with China and it's part of the West and it's got a relationship with the United States. So it looks like it's in – you can see why all of the reports are saying Germany is the economy to go for. We should be more like Germany. But actually – it's interesting now to see the kind of that it's more shallow than we think. Well, I, I think if we take each of those in turn, we think about in relation to like Russia and then China and then the US, and then I really think from 2018, 19, the ways in which the China question and the US question come together. Mm. If we start with Russia, we know because we talked about it in the last episode that the German government doubled down on the Russian relationship after the annexation of Crimea and did so in significant part because the number of German industrial companies, not least, and this is going to be a company that I think is a very important part of this story, BASF, which is the world's largest chemical company, had by this point was entrenched in a relationship, uh, an energy relationship with Russia that directly supplied gas in particular to its plants in Germany they did not want to give up either on the supply of energy from Russia, and particularly gas, nor on having the transit of that gas come through pipelines under the, a pipeline under the Baltic Sea rather than through Ukraine. Hence, as we talked about last time, the commitment to go ahead with the second Nord Stream pipeline that was made in the months after, so the year after, Russia's annexation. Can I, can I just Crimea. ask on that, Helen? Is that because it's more secure? They just can, they can guarantee it, and they don't have to have worries about the Ukrainians siphoning it, siphoning off gas and that kind of thing. Very much so. I mean, in, in, from their point of view, that Ukraine as a transit state is a liability. Mm, yeah, uh, it's a liability not just because 
of at times at difficulty, there was a risks of Ukraine siphoning gas off. But because the relationship between Russia and Ukraine at that point was very much bound up with these conflicts over gas prices for Ukraine that would actually lead, as we talked about before, to Ukraine ending up actually not buying gas directly from Russia, but having to buy it from European Union countries and then reverse flows down and (laughs) pipelines. And then also the issue of like maintaining these really old and not well kept pipelines. So from the point of view of the German government and the crucially these German companies that were bound to the relationship, the energy relationship with Russia, cutting Ukraine out was just the simplest way of ensuring energy security and particularly gas security. But I think it's also important to see, and I think that this is part of the, the, the story of why the the Germans doubled down on the energy relationship with Russia after 2014, is from the point of view of German companies, there is something on the energy front that is already causing them some difficulty. And that is the US shale gas boom. Mm -hmm. Because what you're starting to see, not as dramatically as would be the case later in the decade, is, is that American natural gas prices are significantly lower than those that are available um, for European countries. Mm-hmm. Now, they do persuade Gazprom, the Russian gas company, to lower prices because they're saying, look, the direction of travel is, is that we're going to be buying more expensive gas from you when we could buy cheaper liquid natural gas from the Americans if and when the Americans get to exporting it, which they start doing from like 2016, 17. Mm-hmm. But there's no doubt that by the time that 2014 comes about that you have some of the German industrial companies, again, not least BASF, this chemical company, worrying that German industrial competitiveness is being hurt yep. by the fact that the Americans have now got cheaper gas yep. than Europeans. So it is cheaper gas than would otherwise be the case in the sense that if you turn to the Americans, you've got to build liquid natural gas mm. infrastructure and and then you're in a competition for that gas with other countries, including Asian countries, and that can drive the price up rapidly, as was demonstrated not just after Russia's invasion of Ukraine, but in the last months of 2021 as well. But in a difficult world or a world that's turning more difficult on the energy front, then there's at least security of supply and not too expensive gas coming from Russia. So Germany has a potential competitor then in the United States, US industry, but it's such a smaller country. It does It's reliant on somebody else's energy and it's reliant on exports outside of Germany. I mean, potentially to the rest of the European Union, but in a way that America is just so, they're not comparable countries because America is just so much bigger and so much more self-sufficient. That's part of Germany's weakness. Well, I think that Germany's had a historical weakness going back through the course of the, the 20th century, really since the age of oil began, in that Germany has not had a domestic oil supply or very mm. little domestic oil supply, and neither has it had a domestic gas supply. Some European countries, obviously, including Britain, Netherlands, Norway, got the benefits of North Sea oil and gas from the 70s onwards. That wasn't German Mm. experience. And I think it's important to see that actually one of the reasons why German economic policy has been so focused on a trade surplus, on export-led growth, is precisely because German politicians for a long period of time have had an understanding that if you are a resource importing state, then the corollary of that is that you need to be successful, preferably selling high value added exports Mm. that are going to deliver the revenue for you to buy energy imports. I mean, that's in one sense a crude way of presenting it, but there's, there's basically something in that. And so in that sense, the corollary of that is that their export markets are the United States, other European Union, countries and China. And what's really distinctive is that by 2016, I think it is, that China has actually Germany's main trade partner. And that this has a also, a, a, in a way, a, a distinctive form compared to the way in which other 
states that were able to export into China's market did so is that the big German companies, particularly the car manufacturers, and at the centre of this was Volkswagen, were producing for the Chinese market in China itself. Some of the production actually was in the United States going to China, but they had big investments in China and they were making a lot of profit there. So in 2015, Volkswagen made more than 5 billion euro worth of, of profit in China. So the stakes, particularly for these big German industrial companies in the Chinese market was huge. Yeah, I mean, the way you describe Germany there, Helen, it makes me think that when we think about Britain, and we hear this a lot, that Britain is a particularly sort of free trading country in the world, particularly open, particularly vulnerable to uh, global shocks. But it sounds like Germany in, in many ways is even more like that. It's even, um, you know, this this idea of, you know, we're open or we die. Well, Germany is, is, is dependent on somebody else's gas, is dependent on somebody else providing the security, i.e. the United States. Uh, and it's dependent on the world buying its stuff. So it's dependent on the world's, you know, economy doing okay. And in, and in particular, China. So, so that, that, there are three vulnerabilities that, that it has. Yeah, you could also say it's dependent upon production chains, supply chains bound up with Eastern Europe. I mean, that's yeah. the one that hasn't actually caused a problem mm-hmm. in the sense that if you had, for instance, Hungarian exit from the European Union, that might be a different matter, but that's not a geopolitical risk that's, that's come into play. But the China one mm. and the American one really did in yeah. this period. So if we move from like 2000 and, uh, well, let's stick in 2015, because I think it is actually a a watershed moment on the Chinese side. Mm. And that is because, as we've talked about before, this is the year in which China committed to Made in China 2025. And that China basically adopted what economists might call a import substitution strategy, i.e., the kinds of things that the Germans had been producing or German companies, I should say, had been producing and selling in China. China was going to do those things for itself. Yeah. Uh, and crucial to that is cars. As I said, you know, that you know, the big German car companies, Volkswagen, BMW, Mercedes, inside China, they are big players in the Chinese car market. The Chinese car companies at that point themselves are only small players. But China commits in Made in China 2025 to electric vehicles. Mm. And this is going to change things very considerably. It also commits, though, in a, a, into, to an idea of itself as a country that's more like Germany than yeah, as a cheap, right. a cheap production company. So I, I do wonder when I look back at this and wonder when the sort of the warning sirens started sort of whirring in in Berlin, because you could see how they could become addicted to this relationship with China. I was just looking at some figures. Between 2009 and 2021, German exports to China went from 52 billion euros a year to 123 billion. Now, this is double the combined amount that Britain, France and Italy sent to China. So it's extraordinarily profitable for Germany. So you could see why would they want to do anything to damage this relationship. But there is something going on in in China where it's it's using this relationship to to learn and then to then compete with Germany and to become a kind of giant Germany so I, I just wonder when did when did this relationship start to turn into a competitive one well I think that the made in China 2025 is the crucial crucial um, point here I think it's actually uh, an interesting um, parallel that just occurred to me in the way in which the 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 Japanese back in the uh, latter mm. part of the 19th century basically learned how to be Prussian. <laughs> yes. And yeah. then were competing quite successfully, uh, ironically, over imperial China with Germany as Japan became kind of like very Europeanized. Yeah. And how um, America state. learned to become Britain. Yeah. And then <laughs> here, I think that the the point was that China was wanting from 2015 to change its position, if you like, technologically. Mm, yeah. And it wanted to, or not only it wanted to, it embraced the energy transition as a as a crucial part of that turn. Now, this was pretty difficult 
it's proved to be pretty difficult for the the German car companies mm. because the German car companies had been pretty reluctant to go down the electric vehicle route. Indeed, they braced, embraced diesel. They got themselves, we could, that would be another story I don't think we've quite got time for about the problem then of like faking the, yeah. the, 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 yeah. the diesel testing that caused these car companies a lot of problems like at the, at the same time. But although it's true that the, the German economy in terms of its relationship with China manages, I think, quite well for the first couple of years after 2015, there's a real turning point in 2000 where the conjunction of the growing influence of the Chinese domestic companies, not least the car makers, plus the fact that the Chinese economy is itself slowing down, causes a problem. And you can see in 2018, running into like 2019, that the German economy goes into a recession, at least a, a recession in terms of there being two quarters of yep. negative growth and industrial production falls. And what's really striking about that moment which I think got a bit forgotten about because the pandemic came and overwhelmed it a bit, is is that that's the point where you start getting these stories that saying, look, something's really going wrong with the German economy. Because the rest of the Eurozone at that point, minus Italy that's got sort of set of political problems, is actually growing. And so you can see from that point, I think, a divergence that is reflected in the fact that the German economy is now more bound, if you like, to what's happening in China mm -hmm. than what's happening in the rest, not just of the Eurozone, but perhaps of the European and um, Union. And therefore, it's bound to what's going on in the United States. Absolutely. And I think, I'm just thinking aloud there, if you've got Made in China uh, 2025, which is created in 2015, and then in the, in the United States, you've got Trump starting his trade war with China. So, you know, you've got you've got you've got a world that's actually getting much more difficult for Germany structurally, and these are not you know small uh, gusts of winds. These are these are sizable changes in the weather. Oh, very much so. And if we look at 2018, as well as what's going on in terms of China and the direct impact that that's having on the German economy, there's the effect of this trade war, and that affects the German companies who are producing from the United States and selling into the. The, the Chinese market. This is a real, almost I'd say, existential challenge to the German economy because the German economy kind of presumes not only that the world economy isn't really going to be very geopolitical, mm. but that the multilateral rules bound up in the World Trade Organization are going to hold yeah. and that it isn't possible for states unilaterally to engage in protectionist acts against each other. Mm. But what happens in US China is that that's exactly what happens over the period from like 2018 to 2000, early 2020. Each side just keeps like raising the stakes hmm. in terms of the amount of tariffs that they're putting on each other's goods. Germany's caught in the in the middle um, mm -hmm. of that, and it can't really, I think, think about detaching from China as a way of dealing with that because on top of the fact that the big German industrial companies are so, their interests are, are just completely tied to the Chinese uh, economy, is actually there's a whole infrastructure in place that is tying the German economy to the Chinese economy. I mean, the trade routes, hmm. the train lines that are being built yeah. and, and used. In that sense, I think it's worth thinking of Germany as an unofficial member of the, the belt the Belt and Road, road. Mm. that Germany is the centre, um, particularly in Lampork, Duisburg, of Chinese trade coming in physically into is Belt and Road really China to Germany? That's what well, it is. I, I think that's an oversimplification, yeah. but I think it's important to see, and this is true in relation to Russia as well, is, is that there's a material infrastructure that mm. is underpinning these relationships, whether it's pipelines or whether it's train routes and, and ports. And so when Donald Trump as president is putting a lot of pressure on Merkel, mm -hmm. basically saying less Russia, less China, please, in different ways, it's, it's very difficult to reverse from that because you, it's not just a change of policy yeah. that is required. So Merkel's tactic for dealing with this, I think, 
really amounts to, and I'm talking now on the on the on the China side and the trade war side, is let's just wait Trump out. Yeah, yeah. We, there's nothing we can do about this. We can't adjust. We're just going to have to hope that the Democrats win the presidential election in 2020, and that the threat that Donald Trump poses to us on all sides will come to an end. Yeah, it's it's not just uh, less China, uh, less China, less Russia that the Americans are asking for. It's also more German defence, and, and actually, preferably um, buying American liquid natural gas imports as and well, Amer- and American cars. I think Trump is also <laughs> is also asking for. But the the German position is no, we want more China, more Russia, and we also want more America, mm. uh, which is you know you can see how there's a fundamental problem there in that in that position, and actually. Thinking about just waiting out Trump in one sense is smart politics and it's strategic in that that's actually what happened. You know, there was, there was every chance that Trump was going to be defeated by a Democrat at the next election and that his policies would be rejected by the incoming White House administration. But actually, it's far more structural and that if anything, and we've discussed this on multiple times, Biden's policies are a more effective application of kind of Trumpism in some ways than Trump himself. He doubles down on the, the, the trade war with China and he actually gives it real teeth with the Inflation Reduction Act, which we'll come to after the break. And so this is, this is the position that Germany finds itself in before Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So it's not that the Ukraine the Russia's invasion of Ukraine in in 2022 is the moment that things go wrong for Germany. It's actually been going wrong for for a while before that. Well, I think though we could still say that Merkel is hoping in the last year or so of her chancellorship that she can insulate the German relation German economic relationship with China mm. from whoever is in the White House. So there's this moment which I think we've talked about a few times before, perhaps, at the end of 2020. So this is after Trump has lost the election, but before Biden has taken office, where Merkel and Macron, on a somewhat bilateral basis, on behalf, though, of the whole European Union, strike this investment agreement they've been negotiating for a while um, with China. And it's kind of, I think, saying to the Biden administration, look, we're not going to be moved mm, yeah. on the China relationship. We're glad that you're in office and we hope that the trade war will end. But this is, if you like, our strategic autonomy in the economic sense. And you can see why from Merkel's point of view in particular that that is like, very important because the, the German economy is not in a position to give up really on this relationship with China, um, given particularly, as I say, the scale of the interests of yeah. the, the car Um, makers there, even though it's getting more difficult for them. And even though China is becoming a strategic competitor in that respect, they still want to find a way of making that competition work constructively and not become zero sum, which obviously there's a significant risk of it was was going to be. And I think if you then think about the way in which Biden administration, the Biden administration responded to that, you can say, well, look, in removing the sanctions from Nord Stream 2, which as we talked about in the last episode mm. was done in May of 2021, it was almost like saying to the, the Germans, we'll be nicer to you about Russia, but you've got to be on our side about China. Yeah, And that all then comes apart. I mean, it doesn't work as a deal for Germany, I think, because Germany's not going to make that kind of uh, exchange. China's too important. Yeah, for the German economy um, for that, but also that Biden's willingness to give up on the Nord Stream sanctions is very conditional on what the Russians do. So then, when the Russian invasion of Ukraine comes on the twenty fourth of February two thousand and twenty two, then Germany's faced with a the German government, which is obviously now led by Scholz and not by Merkel, is faced by this complete existential question of how can they hang on in any way to the German. Russian energy relationship. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's a perfect place to, to end the, the, the first half here. Let's turn to what that means and uh, what has since happened in the next two years after the break. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat 
rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems. But getting therapy has its own problems, too. Like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and, of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hey, just before we get back to the discussion, I wanted to quickly tell you about an investigation I've been working on into Meta, the $1 trillion parent company that owns Facebook, Instagram, and WhatsApp, and specifically the influence of its president of global affairs, Nick Clegg. Today in the UK, 10% of all crime happens on a Meta platform. That's not online crime, but all crime. And it's getting worse. Not only has online fraud exploded on platforms like Facebook Marketplace, but child sexual exploitation is rife across all of its platforms too. I spent months digging into this darker side of Meta, speaking to those in government, finance, tech and the police, as well as friends of the former Deputy Prime Minister, trying to work out the answer to one question really. Is Nick Clegg whitewashing Facebook? You can read my investigation on unheard.com. Welcome back, everyone. So we finished the first half there talking about uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine on the 24th of February 2022 and how fundamental this is for Germany. I mean, only a few days later, the Chancellor Olaf Scholz says that it's there's a Zeitenwende, a turning point. This is a turning point for Germany, not just in terms of its foreign policy, but in terms of its economic policy in terms of everything really i mean it, he is saying that we need to start spending more on defense i think that's the that was the big takeaway in terms of the the sort of news lines out of that speech although let's see how much has actually happened since then but economically if, we, if you think about there's just the fundamentals i suppose my question helen is why is this such an economic zeitenwender I can understand the, the the foreign policy elements and the, and the and the military elements but why economically is this such a moment the short answer is because it looks to the German government at that moment that the Russian-German energy relationship that has been built up mm. since the late 1960s is domestically politically untenable and geopolitically politically untenable mm. and that Germany has to go about, at least for the medium term, ending it. Now, there's no possibility of immediately dismantling this relationship. Mm -hmm. And indeed, if you look at it in terms of gas coming into Germany, the crucial turning point is June of 2022 when it's Putin and Gazprom who decide to cut the supply of gas through the first Nord Stream pipeline. Mm -hmm. and, and, and that's when Germany has to go into urgent mode of finding gas supplies from elsewhere in the liquid natural gas market. Now, Scholz had said in the Zeitenwender speech on the on the 27th of February that, that Germany was going to go in this direction and it was going to build liquid natural gas ports. Remember, at this point, it hasn't got any. I mean, that just seems extraordinary, Helen, how it's, how it's managed to put well, itself in such a vulnerable position. I, I think that this gets to the, the, the heart, if you like, of the prevailing assumptions in Berlin when it comes to thinking about the world economy, which is to think that the geopolitical risk is low. Yeah. And that, that runs through the Russia relationship, the China relationship, and, and interestingly, actually, the, the, the US mm -hmm. relationship too. That this is a, a mindset that treats economic interdependence, globalised economic interdependence and German integration into that as a given. Mm -hmm. And that you don't have to, to in some sense, worry about when it might come to an end. And what has happened on the Russia relationship at this point in February of, of 2022 is that that illusion has just completely shattered. Now, the effect of that, and this is obviously not something that was just experienced by Germany in immediate terms, is much higher energy 
prices. Now, we should remember, I think we said this before, that actually energy prices had been rising, particularly gas prices, through the last six months of 2021. So this is, a, if you like, a, an energy shock coming on top of an energy shock that is already in play. But Germany has, for the reasons that we've already talked about it, in terms of it being such an industrialised economy still compared to many other advanced economies, an energy-intensive economy. Mm -hmm. And that's in part because gas wasn't just being used as an energy source, it's being used as an industrial feedstock, particularly for a company like BASF. And so when the price of gas suddenly becomes, or over now a period of months, has a new leap yeah. in terms of, of, of how expensive that it is, then that means that some industrial production just got shut down. Wow. So actually, if you look at the volume of energy-intensive production in Germany over 2022 and 2023, then it falls by about 20%. If you look at um, BASF in particular, it, for instance, shuts down a, a fertiliser plant in Ludwigshafen, which is main German um, operation, I think it was last year. That was nearly 3,000 jobs went there. So this is a, a huge deal, mm -hmm. particularly for the energy-intensive companies like BASF. And it comes on top of the fact that, as far as they're concerned, that actually this problem of Germany's energy costs in relation to other non-European countries has been mounting mm -hmm. since the early 2010s, since the US shale gas boom yeah. began. And now we're seeing, because of the war, Russia turning its um, gas exports to China at a lower price. And because, mm. they, because Russia's weakness, China is able to get its energy at a, at a lower price than Europe. So it's, if, you've, if you already think of the relationship between Germany and China going from one of sort of mutually beneficial relationship to one of a zero-sum competitive relation, relationship where China is trying to become a kind of outsized Germany, a competitor, well, now it's got another advantage over, uh, over Germany. So that must be scaring the, the, the Berlin witless right now. But there's another aspect to this too, which is, is that it's incredibly difficult just to cut Russian gas out, even after Putin had effectively terminated the supply through Nord Stream 1. You still have German imports of gas from Russia, but they're now coming in the form of liquid natural gas, often coming not through German ports, but particularly through the Belgian port Antwerp. Right. So actually, you have an infrastructure that you, you not only was built, but a lot of geopolitical capital was invested in in defending it from the critics, particularly the second Nord Stream pipeline that never actually uh, operated. And then got blew up. <laughs> it, yeah. It, first of all, the imports through stop, then that infrastructure gets blown up. Then you've got to use another state's infrastructure in order to carry on importing this Russian gas anyway that's more in expensive to bring when it's got to be mm -hmm. first converted into liquid form and then brought back into gas form. So mm. that that's just, it's just, a, it, it, I, I'm even struggling with words to find that, to describe how big a, a blow that this is. And if we carry on then with the BASF story in this, and I think that BASF is the company that is most hurt probably in Germany, by, by these events. And BASF had been a corporate partner in the in both the Nord Stream um, pipelines with Gazprom, is that it is now both facing increased competition in the European market from Chinese chemical companies, where, as you said, Tom, the mm. energy, I mean, there, there are energy cost problems. I mean, would be wrong not. To, to suggest that they um, suggest that they weren't, and the Chinese have been very worried about gas prices in late two thousand and twenty one. But you've also got BASF wanting to double down on its own commitment to invest in China, because going back, I think it was first agreed in in two thousand and nineteen, they announced that they were building a, a ten billion euro petrochemical plant 
in um, China. And so that this was moving production that would have otherwise taken place in Germany into China. The BASF had not relocated production to China in the way in which that in part that the, the car companies um, had. And that what happens in the wake uh, of BASF's energy difficulties in 2022 is, is that it seems even more reason mm-hmm. to go ahead with these with these um, Chinese investments than was previously the case. This is a story across German industry as well, isn't it? So I think you have, you know, you have companies like Bosch, Mercedes-Benz, Volkswagen, ZF, who are cutting jobs in Germany at the moment. And some of those companies are making big investments in, in China. So that's, that's a, I suppose, from my perspective, it's quite hard to understand this relationship because in one sense, Germany is, is increasingly having to compete with China. But it's so, the, the relationship is so embedded that it continues to make sense to make investments in China to keep that relationship going. And as far as I can understand it, there is a logic to this as well, that if the German companies can continue making uh, big profits from its relationship, its investments in China, it can somehow kind of cushion the blow that is happening in Germany to maintain employment. And the one way I was trying to think about this over the weekend was the kind of so-called China shock that America suffered in the decades after China's entry into the WTO in, in 2000, when the US lost, you know, potentially several million jobs to China, manufacturing jobs over, over those decades with huge political ramifications. I mean, that you can't really understand Donald Trump without thinking of the, of the China shock. But Germany didn't suffer that. In fact, it, it benefited from that relationship. But actually, is it is one way of thinking about it is that Germany's China shock is just on slow-mo. You know, it's now starting to have that shock and then it's going to carry on over the years now as China starts to replace Germany's more high-tech kind of manufacturing jobs. Yeah, I, I certainly think that there is a way of thinking about it that Germany is experiencing a delayed China shock. I think though as well, we need to think about the different way in which the Germans constructed their economic relationship with China compared to everybody else. In, mm. uh, really, I think, compared to anybody um, else, I think that's right. And one of the things that's central to what happened, not just you know, in the United States, but in Britain too, is the offshoring of manufacturing jobs, not just to China, but to other places mm. in Asia. And what the Germans, I think, succeeded in doing was to keep production for the domestic market and the European market in Europe. Mm. And meanwhile, when they were producing, like the car companies, obviously, in particular, were producing for the Chinese market, that's what went to China. Mm-hmm. So there's not the same straightforward, like, industrial offshoring that takes place. And the reason why it's different is, is because the Germans unlike others, were able actually to compete in, in China's market yeah. itself. And so the, th- the threat now, and I think BASF is the best example of this, is the shifting of industrial production inside Germany that has been inside Germany into China and that the energy shock being at least central to the rationalisation of why that, that move is taking place. And if you listen to all the things that the... The, the present chief executive officer of BASF has been saying it's essentially not just that Germany is too expensive in energy terms for the company, but that Europe is too expensive right. in energy terms for the country. And now, you could have obviously had then a situation in which the German companies responded to China's industrial competition against them by retreating, but that isn't what's happened. Mm. No, no. They, I mean, uh, th- there are other um, strategic threats as well. Um, I was just thinking in, in my head there about solar panels, EV cars. You know, these these are, again are things that seem to be once upon a time Germany's core strength that are now becoming China's core strength. I mean, solar panels is a very good example of that because the the German companies in the first part of this century were lead players mm. in the production of like solar panels and that advantage completely went to China, subsidised state-owned companies in 
um, China or state-supported um, companies in, in in China are taking their place. I think the shock has been is that when that is happening in the car yeah. sector, because cars have been so fundamental, not just to the material structure of the German economy, but the very idea, in a sense, of Germany having such a successful economy. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a core part of their national identity, perhaps, in a way that, that solar panels isn't, but they, 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 it has the same sort of f- fundamental economics behind the shift over over to China. I mean, you, you're just saying there, though, you, you know, that it's state-supported companies in China that are just gobbling up a European industry, and that's happening in solar panels, and effectively through Made in China, it's happening in lots of other industries. I mean, it's remarkable to me in a way that there isn't more European protectionism and more kind of Euro-Trumpism than the, than there is in the United States because there is a clear logic to protectionism. When you when you think about this relationship, you think of uh, if if German companies are saying that the energy were too expensive on, on energy to compete with China. Why isn't there greater calls for a kind of uh, border tax on on energy in the way that there is for uh, climate um, for CO two emissions? Um, you know, I, I, you can see the politics on. If you think about the politics being delayed from the economics, you can see that how the politics are going to shift on this uh, quite quite considerably and perhaps quite quickly in the coming years. I mean, I, I just got the, this these figures out. I think it was this morning they were they were coming out on cars, and because I mean. Th- we're talking about Chinese production of electric cars, but obviously the other the other threat that the Germans have at the moment is American industrial success and American economic success. I mean, Tesla and the Chinese uh, EV company BYD, they now produce more cars than all of Europe's car makers combined, electric vehicles. So Tesla produced 1.8 million in 2023, BMW 376,000, Mercedes-Benz 222,000. These are these are vast numbers, and the Chinese company 1.6 million. So you you can see why some people think of a kind of German deindustrialization and the reindustrialization of America, both in terms of electronic vehicles and tech companies completely dominant. And so you have these two poles in the world economy between China. And the United States, and it no longer being sort of China, the cheap produce, cheap factory of the world, and America producing the the high tech stuff. This is a completely different world we're entering into, and we haven't yet talked about Biden's Inflation Reduction Act, which is you know, maybe it, it, that's a kind of mirror of Xi's Made in China, and Europe, and you know, we, we shouldn't not including Britain, including Britain here, is suffering in this competition between these two giants. Yeah, I think that if we look at it, if we just concentrate for a moment on the German car company aspect of this, we can see exactly what you're talking about, Tom, in play, which is suffering from competition from BYD in the Chinese domestic market, mm-hmm. and also BYD being able now to export and com- to export and compete in the in the European Union yeah. Um, yeah. market. So this isn't just about what's going on in um, China itself. And you can completely see, I think, that there is pressure, certainly within the European um, Commission, for there to be a European response to this problem, which Mm -hmm. actually you can think of as being protectionist itself, or you can think of it as a bid by the Europeans to try to resurrect multilateral rules Mm -hmm. and resurrect the World Trade Organization essentially against what is happening both in relation to China and in relation to the um, United States. So in September of, of 2022, Ursula von der Leyen announced an anti-subsidy investigation into Chinese electric vehicles, which she said was distorting the market. Now, in Germany itself, I think that the German government is then actually quite divided and we'll have to come back to this in another context in in a moment. On the one hand that you've got, I think, Harbeck is the economy minister who's from the Green Party who actually would like to see like diversification away from yeah. China and thinks that this has become a, a geopolitical risk. But the Social Democratic Chancellor, 
Schultz is a lot more, I think, lined up with the big corporate interests who want to stay in China. And I think that you can see this division really mm-hmm. becoming ever more like apparent. And it's actually got a division within German companies. So the smaller, medium-sized companies have tended to disengage, decouple, to use that language from China over the last few years. The bigger companies, the car companies, BASF, doubling down on it, even in the face of China's industrial challenge um, to Germany. And then the German government is divided. And then there's a question of, well, how does the European Union as a whole respond? Yeah. I mean, what ultimately is, how is it in America's or China's interest to try and resurrect the kind of so-called, you know, rules-based order Mm. that Schultz is talking about there? You know, it it doesn't seem like it's in their interest at the moment. No. And this comes back, obviously, to the Inflation Reduction Act, which is protectionist in spirit. We've talked about this before. And it's protections in the spirit for a reason, because this is the Biden administration's response to America's industrial problems in relation to China yeah. and trying to reshore manufacturing jobs. Unsuccessfully, If right? not I back think... to the United States, at least back to states that have, the United States has free trade yeah. arrangements yeah. Um, with. So there is no alliance that's going to be possible between mm-hmm either Germany or the European Union and the United States, even if the Democrats hold on to the presidency, to say we are going to collectively act as the guardians of a free trade oriented or at least multilateral trade international um, order. And the entire structure, I would say, of the of the German economy was rested on that assumption that such a trading order was a given. Yeah, well, I mean, because the, the Inflation Reduction Act carries within it an incentive to attach yourself to the American order and to the American-led world in that it grants opt-outs or it effectively treats you as a part of the American de- domestic market if you sign a free trade deal with the United States or if you're an ally. So I think there's bits that we've talked about this before that there are parts of Australia, the Australian uh, industry that has this relationship. And of course, you can see that Britain is going to desperately try to get carve-outs to get into this American system. There is ultimately no American interest in protecting German manufacturing strength because they're a competitor. So whether it's Democrat or Republican, there's there's no core interest there to protect German strength. There is an interest in ensuring that Europe remains in the American order and not uh, a, a separate pole that's able to do sort of hedge between China and the United States. And ultimately, America provides Europe security. This is the great uh, challenge that Europe has. Well, I think that this is where then the German predicament comes into clear focus in geopolitical terms, in that Germany prior, um, perhaps you could say even to 2018, but certainly prior to February 2022, was able to hedge, Mm. to effectively lean a little bit Russia-China way in a, in a geopolitical yep. sense, whilst at the same time you know, remaining firmly committed to the security alliance within um, NATO. But that actually what events have done since February 2022 is to pull the Russia and the China bits of this apart mm-hmm. from each other. Because the German, whilst it's been possible for the large companies industrial companies to hold on to their position in China and indeed try and integrate further in some sense, including with some corporate partnerships with Chinese companies. It's much been much harder with the German companies entrenched in Russia to do that. Not absolutely in, impossible. There's been less detachment perhaps than there might seem on the surface. But if this structure had, if you like, a, a material component to it, both in regard to Russia and in regard to China. The the China bit's still there in lots of ways, um, but the Russia part is not there in the same way, not least if you want the sort of exhibit A of that, the pipeline situation. So the choices that, that the German government has to make now are actually quite a lot harder than those that were in place in 2018, when the beginnings of this, as we discussed in the first part, were becoming apparent. And at the same time, I think 
and I'm aware that we're getting we're running out of time as usual, is we should just say that the the domestic political situation in Germany, where you have an unpopular coalition government between the Social Democrats, the Greens, and the and the and the the Free Democrats, is not helping any of this because the German government, this government, is very internally divided about what to do. I think it's somewhat divided on the China question, and it's certainly divided on the on the question of like what macroeconomic policies should now be pursued in order to try to deal with the uh, absence of growth in the German economy. So on the green side, it's all about we need more investment. On the free democrat side, it's about tax cuts, labour market reform. And in a way, that division is entrenched because the Greens, as we've said, hold the economy ministry, but the free democrats, um, Christian Lindner, the free democrat leader, is the finance Right. Minister, yeah. so you've essentially then got an impasse within the heart of the government yeah. about and all what the, to do. And all the while you've got the AFD rising in the polls, which will surely they will benefit from an economy that is struggling to, to recover in, in both in the short term and, and, and as we're talking about here, potentially in a longer term, sort of structural problem for the German economy provides fertile ground for the AFD who will offer an alternative, in voters' mind at least. It might not be an economic alternative, but it would be a kind of political alternative. I mean, the one thing, Helen, that I think about, maybe we should finish here, is just that in one sense you could see how other economies in Europe could, could maybe look on Germany with a kind of wry smile that suddenly the economy that has been sort of telling everybody what to do and getting their house in order is now struggling itself. But surely this is ultimately a problem for everyone in Europe, not just in the EU, but this seems to be a, a structural problem that Europe as a whole finds itself, including the UK, where we're just going to struggle to carve out a role for ourselves or a way to make ourselves prosperous in this world that is going to be dominated by the United States and China. I mean, Again, a lot of talk about America being in decline, and you know maybe it is, and politically it's obviously got a lot of problems, but economically it just looks extraordinarily strong at the moment, fundamentally strong. You know, in terms of energy, uh, it's not dependent on somebody else. Energy independence, uh, technological independence, EV cars. You know, these are these are extraordinary strengths. Well, I think. That there is a side to the American story of dependency, which is why the Biden administration has been so committed to the Inflation Reduction Act. Mm. Uh, and one of those dependencies is uh, around rare earths and metal processing and those supply chains that, that right. China... Oh, hence the, the Australia relationship. Yeah, that China yeah. dominates. So it's, in that sense, that is a, a shared problem between the Europeans and the mm. Americans. I mean, because if you look at one of the things that the Germans import a lot of from China, because we've been talking about it the other way around, um, rare earths is pretty important to that because rare earths matter in terms of industrial, high-level industrial production, not mm. just in terms of energy transition stuff. The difficulty for European countries and the European Union is that we in Europe have that problem plus all these other yeah. problems. And I, although I think there is something quite singular about the, the German story because it had a singular relationship with China mm -hmm. and a not complete singular relationship with, with, with Russia, but it did in terms of the large states in yeah. um, Europe. There is still something that goes way beyond Germany in this story. And it is about, as you said, the difficulties that European economies have in a very geopoliticized world economy. And at the moment, it's pretty difficult to see how that geopoliticized world economy is going back into anything that looked like the, the globalized economy where you could talk about it being liberal and not being subject to geopolitical risk. Now, I think, as we've talked mm. about before, Tom, that was always an uh, illusion. Yeah, yeah. But the illusion is well and truly shattered now. Yeah, on that. We should leave it for this week. That's been great. Thanks so much for listening. Please do uh, follow and give us a rating if you see fit and see you next time. And as ever, this podcast was produced by you and Daughtry. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. 
Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.